welcome to Library Fugitives, a support group for people who get lost in the stacks. I'm Molly. And I'm Lindsay. And every episode, we let the Encyclopedia pick our books. This week, for our season two premiere episode, the Encyclopedia gave us the topic of both the book and the movie sucked. And boy, do we have some <laughs> good choices for you. Should it be bad choices instead, I think is more appropriate? I don't know. Mine's very controversial. I will be doing Aragon by Christopher Paolini. And I will be doing Jeremy Fink and the Meaning of Life by Wendy Mass. So today we're actually recording on my birthday. Woohoo! Everybody give a happy birthday, Molly. We won't be able to hear you, but the spirit's there. <laughs> oh, not not in the flesh, but in the spirit. Oh my god. <laughs> it's a Sunday too, so my religious trauma just went Ugh. <laughs> Which is partially why I did it. Yeah. So anyway. Um, I went out to lunch yesterday with my wonderful friend Emily, and she and I, you know, we've kind of, like, we don't live close anymore, and so it's one of those friendships that it was just kind of, like, drifting, but we're, like, we can catch up, you know, it's like no time's passed at all. Mm-hmm. So, for my birthday, she got me one of those blind date with a book things those are blowing up right now like libraries are doing them well and yeah i know i totally understand that and i've done a couple of these before i haven't really liked what i've gotten but she nail on the head so the blind date with a book it says genre is ya fantasy which we haven't done yet um but i have thoughts about that technically the book i did for fantasy was ya fantasy so like well then you get to double it. Oh, yay. Okay. Um, But the stats say it's a thrilling, action-packed fantasy adventure that will resonate deeply with anyone trying to find their way in the world. Hmm. So before I get into what the book actually was, she also got me one of these really awesome bookmarks that I kind of collect and use one at a time. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, It says it's got these really cool little drawings of birds and flowers, and it says she believes she could, so she did with the little tassel things which i play with all the time um which is probably not a good thing she got me this really cool card that is it's literally just books on shelves like one of those things where the shelves take up like an entire towering like this would have a rolling ladder Mm -hmm. and then it's got a little couch it's got a person sitting on the couch reading a book and there's a dog and a cat dogs on the couch and the cat's on the back of the couch which is Totally a cat thing to do. Yeah. And then you open the card and it says, relax and enjoy the next chapter. May it be a thriller. Happy huh. birthday. And I'm just like, that is going to be, I have this, I have this string that I hang like birthday cards and year round cards and just all kinds of like Christmas cards, especially mm-hmm. are hanging from it still right now. That's going on there. Uh, that is going on there. That's going to be on the permanent rotation. Hey, so you know you described the book and then you immediately went into the other thing. Yes, I know. I'm getting I'm getting to the book. Okay. So this is a book <laughs> that honestly I've wanted to read for a while, but I haven't really like had a chance to. Every time I've checked it out from the library, life has happened. And so it's Graceling by Kristen Cashore. And I'm actually really kind of excited to read this one. So now I can read it on my own schedule and not the library's. Yeah, Emily showed me up um, because I 100% was saving your present for, like, the little birthday party gathering uh-huh. thing that we're going to be having later in the week after recording this. Um, but even then, I'm like, oh my gosh, because I have it in a bag, but I'm thinking now, I'm like, maybe, maybe I need to shoosh up the bag. No, that, it's that's, okay. That's, some, that's a good card, so I'm already, you know. <sighs> No. Okay. But also, speaking of the party, there's some drama going down. Um, hmm. Are we going to talk about this not recording later? Yes, okay. because this this is some serious Bam Fam drama, and we're not this. Yeah. So now that we've gotten through the off mic drama, yes, <laughs> and we may even just be like, yeah, cutting we, out the part where we were and referencing this part it all together as well. We'll we'll see how it goes and how it flows. Um, but I don't know if anyone's seen this post floating around on Facebook. But I like to do fun stuff for my birthdays. So when I turned twenty eight, 
because it was the 10 year anniversary of me turning 18, I had every eight year old's dream birthday party. I invited all my friends over for a slumber party. Mm-hmm. I did the adult version of kid cuisine, which was, you know, corn, dinosaur nuggets, mac and cheese. Mm-hmm. And like, it was just. And what was the cake? I, we had two cakes, actually. So we had a chocolate lava cake because, you know, with the kid cuisine, you get the warm brownie and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also I never got a Barbie cake when I was younger. And I wanted a Barbie cake, damn it. So I got a Barbie cake. It was so cute. I made a Barbie cake, damn it. <laughs> oh, by the way, I had clicked. I had meant to, like, make sure I was doing maybe on the thing. But then I had said no. And now I can't find the, like, Facebook invite to the party. So can you, like, re- Yeah, I'll do extend it. Extend the invitation. That way I can, um, like, put my thing and see yeah. what potatoes are being brought. <laughs> so for, uh, so mentioning potatoes. So, like, for my 30th, I did a death to my 20s because you're only as old as you feel. And I don't feel like death to my youth is an appropriate thing. So um, that was that. Um, didn't really do anything for my 29th, but this year I saw this post on Facebook and it was, it's a screenshot of a tweet and it says me to my 11 year old, what do you want to do for your 12th birthday party in February? Her, I want a potato book party. (laughs) Me, what's that? Her, just something I came up with. We serve six different types of potatoes. Everyone brings their books and we read genius it's perfect because then you can talk but also if you start to feel overwhelmed like you, you can, can just book up yes and, like, exactly will understand and also potatoes right 100 percent. if there's not at least one makeshift flyer quoting samwise gamgee we're not <laughs> doing it right so you might have to do that one i might but here's the thing <gasps> emily just told me about a thing and i'll see if she can send me the link because she lives in um western virginia uh, not west virginia but western virginia um and she told me about a thing she made for her brother so i'm gonna i'm gonna see if she can send me the file to it and i can get it printed because oh my gosh it's gonna be hilarious um but so far i am bringing my family's secret recipe potato rolls because it's not just potato it's not potato flour as most people would assume it's mashed potatoes which is really cool. Don't give away all the secrets. That's though. only that's the only thing I say. Okay. <laughs> um, I am also doing B. Dylan Hollis does all these really old recipes oh, on TikTok. We love it. Um, he did potato candy, and it's literally just a mashed potato without any butter or milk, a shit ton <laughs> of powdered sugar, and peanut butter. And apparently it's really, really good. So I wanted to try it. So we're going to, I'm doing that. My mom is, because we need something other than starch. Mm -hmm. um, My mom is going to do crockpot meatballs. Nice. And sweet potato casserole. Nice. As far as I'm aware, our friend Alexis is doing mashed potatoes because her mashed, mashed potatoes, potatoes are, are the best. They're like famous. She makes them for literally every get together we have because <laughs> we it's we like request it when she, <laughs> if she doesn't offer it is that is that's what she's making or bringing and she doesn't have an idea. She's like, I'm not sure. We're like, well, if it wouldn't be too much trouble, what about your potatoes? Because <laughs> she knows we love them. So that's them. four. <laughs> Our friend Faye is hopefully, fingers crossed, doing um, an Irish potato pancake. Nice. And then my friend Tanya, who y'all haven't met, but she and I are really good friends. She's the one I did the um, body positive photo shoot with. Oh, nice, nice, nice. Yeah. Um, she's going to do potatoes au gratin. So that's six right there. And then, you know, other people are bringing things. Um, I think Andrew's bringing drinks. I know Aileen is bringing lumpia. Oh, that's so. another thing. Every time her family's lumpia <laughs> is so good. Okay. I think I have an idea. I have two options. One is going to be roast potatoes, which they're generally better when you make them that day. And I'll be coming from work. So that might be a bit of a problem. Or mm-hmm. I can do my family's uh, hash brown casserole recipe. Okay. Um, it's fairly easy. You get like the diced hash browns, mm-hmm. not that like shredded. Yeah. Uh, which some people call home fries. Some people call like different things. It's hash but, browns. Yeah. But it's just hash browns. That's what we call it. So hash browns. Um, and then you get 
cream of chicken soup, cheese, um, sour cream, cornflakes to top it to give it some texture. And here's the thing. I fucking hate cornflakes in literally everything else, but this is really good. So the benefit of that is it can be baked and stored and then just heated up. Yeah. So, so my, uh, my family's got a breakfast casserole too, mm -hmm. uh, which is the diced hash browns, the Orida diced hash brown. I think it's Orida. I don't know. Some brand of hash browns um, with a shit ton of eggs sausage and then absolutely smothered in cheese because like, that's the american palate it's right add cheese to it <laughs> <laughs> so so we'll figure something out i i just put a roll call out on the facebook to see hey who's bringing what <laughs> yeah and later you can redo the invitation yeah. since i fucked that up on facebook <laughs> um but now that we've kind of like talked about like the setting <laughs> and the mood and the general, this is what's going on right now in our lives this week. Um, we should probably not keep the listeners in suspense any longer. So why don't we get into your book? <laughs> so I did uh, Aragon by Christopher Paolini, which um, I'm kind of mad at him right now. So I'm just going to call him Crispy. For the entirety of this. Quick question. Are you mad at him because of the same reasons you've always been mad at him because of Aragon? Or did he do some new shit? Both. Are you going to talk about? Yes. Okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> so Aragon, this is going to be yet another loaded topic. Um, not as bad as the book that shall not be named that I threw at a wall. Um, that we already did for that episode. <laughs> but uh, yeah. Anyway. A summary before we begin. The book tells a story about a young farm boy named Aragon who finds a weird stone in the mountains around his uncle's home. When the stone turns out to be one of the last three dragon eggs in the world and it hatches, the dragon bonds with Aragon and he becomes a dragon rider. The local storyteller gives Aragon advice on how to go about this, but the dragon hatchling draws the eye of the evil king Galbatorix, and Aragon, his dragon, and storyteller Brom must flee to the safety of the Varden, a group and place hidden from the evil king. Along the way, they pick up an elf named Arya, a strange young man named Murtaugh, and they're pursued, pursued by Galbatorix's shade Durza. We also meet the witch Angela and her companion, the werecat Solombum. So with that little summary out of the way, we are now entering into what I would call spoiler territory. Yes, which will also most likely end up being an unhinged rant, just because the brief bit we've talked about it leading up to it, it will be an unhinged rant with notes uh -huh. as well. Um, yes. So, yeah, <laughs> this is it's really going to be a criticism, essentially. There is <laughs> I broke a pen. <laughs> while writing um one of these things because it just pissed me off so bad um yeah we're not going to get into that until we get there okay <laughs> am i going to be able to see on the page where you broke the pen possibly okay let's go <laughs> um a bit more information about crispy himself most people believe that the book was published in 2003 when i was 11 and you were what five um i was i i Depending on what time in 2003, August. I would have been either... Th oh, so I would have just turned four, like, two months ago. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, every chance I get, I gotta bring up the age difference, especially because it's my birthday today. Yep. Hey, uh, I was being nice and not bringing it up, <laughs> and then you just gotta be like, ha ha, I'm feeling insecure in myself, so I'm gonna make fun of the baby face over here. Bite me! No, thank you. Anyway. <laughs> the book was published in 2003. Uh, when Paolini himself was 20. Everyone thought this was really cool, and it was. A young guy getting published at such a young age and with a heavy fantasy story to boot. But in actuality, Crispy was 15 when the book was first published. His parents self-published the book with his own illustrations for the cover and map. It wasn't until 2002, after shilling his own book for years and barely selling anything, that an author from America, because Crispy is Canadian, saw how much his stepson loved the book and took it to his publisher. There was another round of editing, which was should have been more. Uh, <laughs> and then we got the Aragon we know today. So this book, 
the plot of all four books actually was written by a 14 to 15 year old boy. And you can tell. I was also a 15 year old writer. And let me tell you, I cringe when I see what I wrote back then. And I didn't have the luxury of time that Crispy did. He graduated from homeschool at 14. Uh, but I mean, young kid, chosen one, raised by his uncle on a farm who finds out he has mystical powers. That sounds like Star Wars. I was just going to say, did I just describe <laughs> Aragon or Luke Skywalker? <laughs> um, hey, the... it'll be really funny if Aragon stares into like a dragon's face like Luke does with the, <laughs> with the lightsaber. Like, do 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 Dumbass um, moment. I've never read it. So you're going to, does that happen? I honestly don't remember. I blocked this out. Okay, fair. Let's get back to the notes so I don't keep giving you a crisis. Uh, the writing is very choppy and just, it's a 15-year-old's writing. Yeah. The first line, and I'm going to be cribbing a lot from a 2015 article by Chris Winkle that I will link to in the notes because <laughs> um, they make a lot of really good points. The first line is, wind howled through the night, carrying a scent that would change the world. A decent enough line in general, but is the scent itself going to change the world all on its own? And Winkle goes on to deconstruct the next bit about the shade Durza. The very next line is, a tall shade lifted his head and sniffed the air. He looked human except for his crimson hair and maroon eyes. And that, that's all the description we get. Like, I get using that description in fan fiction because theoretically you know what the character looks like already. Yeah. So you can say the blonde or his gray eyes or whatever. Um, it's like, why is he called a shade? Is he a muscle-bound warrior? An old man? We know nothing. Absolutely nothing. I love how Gidget came into the room, looked up at you talking about this, almost like she could sense the annoyance, and then noped and was like, nope, I'm leaving. <laughs> well, to be fair, that's Gidget. She comes in, she nopes. She comes in, she nopes. That's, that's just Gidget. Um... Winkle rewrites the sentence in a way that makes more sense in omniscient narration, which is what Crispy's going for, but, you know. His appearance was almost human, leading many travelers to drop their guard and approach peacefully. Only when they stood within an arm's length did they see the maroon eyes and crimson hair hiding under his hood. By then it was too late to run. Which, that's more of a hook. Right? That's the second line of the book! You should be... Grabbed and hooked already. It's much better. Now, I will grant you that Winkle has a lot more experience writing than Crispy had at the time, but still. The editor should have worked with Crispy more on this whole thing. Or, you know, had him talk to an actual English teacher rather than just what his parents taught him homeschooling. And I get to say that because I was homeschooled for a period of time. I'm going to stop ranting now and get on to, like, the actual book, which is, well... We're running into the Twilight problem, y'all. Despite inhaling this book in middle school, I just, I, I couldn't do it. In the first five pages, just the prologue, I can count so many things that just jolt me out of the story. The shade's blade, thin enough to slide through ribs, but stout enough to hack through the sturdiest armor. You can't have both, buddy. You can't. It, no. Not unless it's made of, like, vibranium or some shit, which, this is not the Marvel Universe. But also, like, even within that universe, if that was the case, you create something that, you, and you describe it and you make the lore so that that weapon makes sense in its context. Exactly, you don't just throw it out there. Um, when the elven lady, because there's elves, apparently. Oh gosh, of course there is. <laughs> uh, in, in the article, Winkle calls her, oh, hello, Arwen. <laughs> <laughs> I just started cosplaying Arwen, too. This is a bad image. <laughs> Keep going. When the elven lady sends off the crystalline blue stone the shade apparently has been sent to retrieve, he gets so mad he throws a fireball at her. Then the red fire smote her and she collapsed. But apparently she doesn't die, because he ties her to a saddle and takes her prisoner. Buddy. My man. You can't smite somebody and have them live. That's what smite means. It. So we're getting into the whole, you know, thesaurus thing again. 
Which, like, that's fine. Not everybody has always, not, especially back then in the time that it was written. Um, the internet was vaguely a thing. If you didn't have an actual copy of a thesaurus, like, physical copy, it would have been very hard to, like, find more descriptive words. Or, like, if you didn't have an in-person dictionary, you were kind of working off of base context. And if you weren't 100% sure, that's fine. But, like, still. Yeah. Especially since this went through editors when multiple, it got republished. So multiple editors. Is... <laughs> so I think that um, S. Meyer might have gone to the Crispy School of Writing because Twilight didn't come out until 2005. Uh, because they both write the same way. And it also reminds me of My Immortal, if anybody else knows what I'm talking about. Fuck off. <laughs> I hate you making me think of that. On a Sunday morning when you already brought up my religious trauma and made fun of my age. <laughs> I hate you making me think of my immortal. I live to cause you torment. Yeah. I have to and I'm the Slytherin? What the fuck is this? <laughs> <laughs> so um, I'm going to get back on track because I still have the book to do and the movies as well. The elf sends the stone off to some random place and Aragorn is nearly blasted by it while hunting. He takes the odd stone back home with him and tries to sell it for meat, since he can't bring home the wild game now. Another man, a traitor, also won't buy it, but tells Aragon the stone is hollow. Later, when he enters the tavern, Brom the storyteller gives a tale of the dragon riders, heroes who obviously rode dragons. They bond hard with their dragons, usually dying when their dragons do, because a dragon will only hatch when they choose their rider. Hmm. Galbatorix, now King Galbatorix, had his dragon killed in a battle, and he went insane. He created a group of now-dead rebel riders called the Forsworn with the help of his lieutenant Morzan, and killed all the other riders before crowning himself. Oh. Aragon goes home, trying to test how hard the stone is when it squeaks. As he goes to bury it, as one does... This... <laughs> Fair! If I'm holding a rock and it starts squeaking, I'm thinking it's possessed, and I'm like, I gotta get this the fuck out of my house! <laughs> Uh, the stone cracks and a baby dragon falls out. When Aragon touches its snout, a silver oval appears on his hand and he can share thoughts and emotions with the dragon. He tells no one. After a while, though, Aragon realizes he needs to learn more about dragons and goes to Brom, who tells him the origin of the dragon riders and the physiology of dragons. Brom lists off names of dragons, ending quietly with the name Saphira. Of course, this is the name Aragon's baby dragon likes, and is how Aragon, the dense little fucker, figures out she's a girl. Granted, he's never met a dragon before, but damn, she's been given off signs. So. Okay, what kind of signs, though? That doesn't make... It's, is it like the whole cartoon animal thing where they give the dragon the dragon tits or something and eyelashes? No, but it's, the dragon is acting very, very what some would consider feminine. Like the way she's, like even the language he uses, I think he uses coquettish at one point. Does like, he want to fuck the dragon? I don't know. Again, he was 15. A few days later, Aragon is saved by Brom from two hissing strangers looking for a blue stone. Brom sees the silver mark on his palm and Aragon runs away, flying off on Saphira's back into the deep forest. Aragon then finds he can't move. Saphira's scales have stripped the skin from his thighs. As a horseback rider, and that information will be relevant again later, I can tell you that saddle sores hurt. But to have your skin stripped off, my dude, you did. And you ain't ever going to have kids either. By the time they re return home with, you know, what skin grafts, the farm has been burned and his uncle is dying. Again, Star Wars. <laughs> Aragon sees Braum, then promptly passes out. The first of many times he passes out. When he wakes up and is being healed, so apparently, you know, he made it back with no skin on his thighs, and now he's being healed? I, hmm. <sighs> Aragon decides he and Saphira have to leave. When he starts to go after his uncle's killers, Brom stops him, telling him he knows about the dragon. Brom insists on coming with Aragon, giving him the sword Zarak. 
Brom and Aragon track his uncle's killers, the Razak, and Brom teaches Aragon how to sword fight. Again, sword fighting, like you see in movies, is not actually how you sword fight. It, no. But as much as I love the scenes in The Princess Bride and Pirates of the Caribbean, it, 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 it no. Yeah. Fencing is not done with broadswords. When they arrive at the next town, they discover that troll-like creatures called Urgles have killed everyone. They fight, and Aragon manages somehow to magic an arrow to destroy them. Brom tells Aragon he knows some magic and begins to teach it to him, as well as the ways of the dragon riders. Which, you know, at this point, your suspicions should be going ping, ping, ping about Brom. I mean, it did from the beginning when it's like, there was a man. He went mad when his dragon died. Like, fuck off. You're him. I'm already calling it. Nope. That's not him? Nope. Okay, I was wrong. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> As they travel, Aragon gets better and better at magic. When they arrive at a port city and Brom seeks out a friend, Aragon meets an odd herbalist named Angela, which is the only normal name in the damn book. It's like, hi, Jessica. <laughs> but it's Angela, I know. But it's like, hi, it's Becky. Like, you're, you're in... You're in Lord of the Rings, and you have Frodo, and Gandalf, and Ar Aragorn, and Galadriel. Galadriel, and Legolas, and then all of a sudden you have... Billy. Exactly! <laughs> but he also... You do have Bill the Pony, though, so... I, but he's a pony! It's different! Yeah, the, the and animal... And it's probably short for Billimus instead of William, you know? Well, he's actually named after the... And we're getting... We're gonna anyway, we're, we're getting, getting off track. that. <laughs> we will get into that when we do our Lord of the Rings special. Please, we need to get through this. <laughs> I still have many more pages to go. Oh gosh, okay. <laughs> um. So he meets Angela and her werecat Solombum, which I gotta admit, a werecat? That's pretty freaking cool, except for the way they describe it. Mm. And the fact that he's a sentient being and apparently belongs to the witch? Uh, not so cool. Mm. They tell Aragon his future, which includes death, romance, and a familial betrayal. Brom reveals that he is a member of the Varden, a secret society dedicated to overthrowing evil Galbatorix. Brom is also the one who killed the Lieutenant Morzam. Aragon begins to have dreams about a young woman in a cell as they head to their next destination. They're spotted by the Razak and captured. Just as they're about to be killed, they're rescued by a young man named Murtaugh, though Brom is mortally wounded. As he dies, he tells Aragon that he was once a dragon rider to a dragon named Sephira. Aragon and his dragon, Sephira, turn Brom's cairn into a diamond. Just a huge-ass diamond. And Brom is visible through it. Yeah. Yeah. Why? I, that, mm, and it keep going. I don't understand. As they go on, Murtog tags along and reveals that Aragon's sword belonged to Morzan, the man Brom killed. In a daring rescue involving truth serums in the shade, Aragon, Murtog, and Sephira save the girl, the elf, but for some reason Aragon can't heal her, which is apparently one of his powers now. This is when they cross a ginormous desert, and this is where I am really going to rant. You mean this hasn't been a rant so far? You ain't seen nothing yet. I'm scared. Please continue. Aragon and Murtaugh drive the horses as hard as they could without killing them. Sometimes they dismounted and ran on foot to give the horses a rest. Only twice did they stop. Both times to let the horses eat and drink. So, not quite into the ranty bit yet. I can feel the rage, though, because you're a horse girl. Mm-hmm. Um, at the very beginning of the book, in the prologue, uh, the elves have galloped away from the evil shade. So they canter in, they gallop away. It just, it, mm, it's just not right. Uh, they also, like, it, it's, it's this horse surge forward and away and it, no. And then it's like, there's, you know, some, they rippled in the moonlight. And it's like, do you mean the horse's skin? Do you mean, anyway. <laughs> anyway. 
This desert thing is really where anyone who's ever been near a horse or hell seen the movie Hildago will tell you Crispy has never seen a horse in real life. That pace? The pace that you are going on riding horses? Your horses are zombies before you get a third of the way through this vast desert. Even Arabians, horses specifically bred to be fast desert horses, can't hold that pace. They did. The only way they made it through the damn desert is if Aragon uses his new magical skills to reanimate their dead corpses. It just cannot be done, especially since their horses are from the mountains. It's a totally different skill set and characteristics on the breed of the horses required to live there. It's Crispy continues to violate the thesaurus just as badly as Meyer. Again, at least he has the excuse of being 15, and the boys in Sephira must reach the Varden. The elf, who telepathically tells Aragon her name is Arya, has been poisoned and will die without the cure that they have. Murtaugh becomes uneasy at the idea of reaching the Varden, and Aragon can't understand why until Murtaugh reveals that he's the son of Morzon, Galbatorix's lieutenant that Brom killed. He will automatically be viewed as an enemy. They are nearly killed anyway by the Urgles that have been chasing them this whole time, but are rescued by, ta-da, the Varden. Arya is taken to be healed, and the boys are mind-probed. Murtaugh, as he is feared, is imprisoned, while Aragon gets the five-star tour, again running into Angela, who tells him the only way to kill a shade is to stab it in the heart. Dwarves, because we have those now too, give Saphira dragon armor, and the Varden and the dwarves prepare to battle the shade's forces. Lots and lots of people die on both sides, with Aragon facing down the shade. It looks like he's going to lose when Saphira swoops in Deus Ex Machina and breathes fire, distracting the shade long enough for Aragon to stab him in the heart. And Aragon passes out again. He's like Frodo. Frodo's always passing out and falling over. Which, like, this dude read a lot of fantasy when he was being homeschooled, so I'm assuming that's where a lot of this came from. But you could legit make a drinking game out of this. When he wakes up, he's got a big painful scar. The battle was easily won once the shade died, and Aragon is now ready to fight for the kingdom. Finally, the first book is over. Oh, thank God. There are three more of these. Oh, no. No, no, no. No, I, I, no. Um, really the only thing I have to say about the movie is that it sucked mostly because it did that thing, you know, every reader's worst nightmare. Where the job of a book slapper needs to exist to slap the writer slash director with a book when they deviate from the plot too much. Yeah. But, you know, in this case, it would be a good thing. But because, you know, it's... Like, that's that's the whole point of the movie being bad, is it's a A bad bad adaptation. Yes. It's not a bad movie. It's just a bad adaptation. Well, it's it's also kind of a bad movie. But as far as me really not wanting to watch it goes, um, it's a bad adaptation. Kind of just, we're good there. Um, so I am not going to rehash any more than that, given how long just the book took. Um, in conclusion, 15-year-olds really shouldn't be published without a co-author. Don't use adjectives that way. Do actual research because a league is not what you think it is, boyo. (laughs) Instead of just relying on Star Wars and Lord of the Rings, which, sorry, Lindsay, and don't ride zombie horses. Also, Crispy is a terrible human being who wants to use AI art for the cover of his new book, which is terrible and shitty and now technically illegal. Uh, I'll source that in the notes because that is yet another rant and I really don't want to get into it right now. Maybe we can talk about that on TikTok. Maybe. Okay. I just, I, okay. Okay. Now, while Molly has her breakdown and processes having to recount this, I really do hope you guys appreciate you listeners the fact that we suffered for this episode. Mm-hmm. It was so bad. On both of our parts. So I'm going to give Molly a minute. <sighs> to reflect. Uh, and um, get into my book. Now as all of you that are listening are aware of. Um, I can't do a book review without giving a backstory. Especially if it's tied to a specific memory from my past. And this book. Uh, Jeremy Fink and the Meaning of Life by Wendy Mass. <laughs> it's um. It's a doozy, folks. <laughs> you see, uh, for years, the um, area that I've grown up in uh, holds a competition called Battle of the Books uh, for kids ages 9 to 13. So there's a fifth grade group and then a grouping for middle schoolers uh, for our American listeners. Mm-hmm. 
Um, in this competition, students are grouped together from each participating school or organization and given a list of books to read between them. There's kind of like a quiz bowl of sorts about all of the books. There's going to be plot points, overall themes, that sort of thing that the questions are based on. Um, and it's stuff that the students should have been able to understand if they paid attention reading the books, did that sort of thing. Et cetera, et cetera. Yes. Uh, we're actually, like, I've seen some preliminary stuff going on at the library I work at, like, the past couple weeks. We've had a couple of rounds of people doing Battle of the Books. So that's, that's fun because it's a little bit of a memory. Um, because when I did it, I grew up as a fast reader. I was given multiple books, unlike the rest of my teammates. I read three books. So two of them I still love to this day. And one of them is the bane <laughs> of my existence. <laughs> Guess which one Jeremy Fink is? Um, I'm going to say bane of your existence. Well, I mean, the title of this episode kind of gives that away <laughs> entirely. But yes. Um, our team came in second place, and I, to this day, blame it on the horrible writing that I had to endure while reading <laughs> Jeremy Fink. It's truly, it's one of the worst books I've ever read in my life, and it has inspired a series on my personal TikTok early on last year called Passionate Book Rants, uh, which brings me to why this book relates to our specific subject today. <sighs> you said you did a series of TikToks on it. We should totally duet it. I deleted it. Oh. Uh, just because, like, it was a while ago. So, like, anyways. But. Rude. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> I got some of my notes from my passionate book grant because I was limited, you know, at the time TikTok was limited to three minutes. So it was very condensed. So. Yeah. I got the basis of my notes, like a start of an idea for the po this podcast episode. But. Anyway. You know. But. We're talking about books today that were awful, in our own opinions. Mm -hmm. You know, I, there's plenty of people that love the Aragon books, and I'm sure yeah. there's people out there that love Jeremy Fink, so. No. But this is our opinions. Yeah. You're listening to, this is our podcast, this is our opinions. This, this entire podcast is an opinion podcast. <laughs> yes, literally. So we're talking about the books that we thought were awful, and that also had really bad movie adaptations. Now, as much Again, as, in our opinion. In our opinion, yeah. Now, as much as I tried to block out the traumatic memories of this god-awful <laughs> book, oh my god, um, I spent most of my adolescence blissfully unaware uh, of anything else, even somewhat related to it. Didn't know the author had any other books <laughs> or anything. And then I started doing the book rants on my TikTok. Um, you see, I had like flashes of memories for particular scenes, but I wanted to make sure that my ideas made sense. So I did my research. And in Googling Jeremy Fink, I discovered that they made a movie back in 2011. <laughs> I did what any self-respecting individual trying to heal from this shocking experience would have done. <laughs> I pressed pause on my book rant draft and ignored it for weeks. <laughs> I couldn't believe that some studio thought that this book, this fucking book, was good enough to be made into a movie. And then, out of highly morbid curiosity, I was like, okay, um, I'll just watch the trailer just to see. For research purposes, I wasn't going to watch the whole movie at that point. Because if I'm only doing a three-minute TikTok, I wasn't going to watch the whole movie. And the movie was just as bad as the book, if not worse, which is a tall order. That it, uh. <laughs> and now I've had to reread the book again and actually watch the movie for you needy listeners at home that love to see us suffer. Yes, the Encyclopedia picked it, so maybe I should really be blaming the Encyclopedia. But <laughs> you guys asked for this. You really did it. I'm just bitter. Um... The things I do for this podcast. Oh, both of us. <laughs> okay, so on to the comparison between the book and movie. From this point on, there will be heavy spoilers and criticism. So if you're looking for any positivity, don't. <laughs> Seriously, you've been warned. It's going to be, I'm going to be shitting on this book and movie so hard. Um, and plot points will be revealed. So now in brief summary of the premise. Jeremy Fink receives a box with four keyholes in it, uh, the box itself being inscribed with the words, the meaning of life, for Jeremy Fink to open on his 13th birthday. 
it turns out that Jeremy's dad died because that gets dropped. Like it's nothing important. It's like uh, da 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 going through the plot, talking about my best friend, and yeah, my dad. And when my dad died, and it's like, what the fuck? <laughs> it's not. Yeah, when my dad died, I stopped liking such and such. It's like it's not even like I had a really hard time, and go, like it just gets dropped, and then you get these little reminders. You do come to see the trauma that it caused Jeremy, but like the first introduction of the fact that his dad died is so fucking jarring that I literally <laughs> sat back when I was rereading it and I was like, I don't even remember his dad dying. <laughs> I don't remember it. I don't remember the fact that his dad was dead. Because <laughs> it just got dropped and I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> um, so before Jeremy's dad died, he sent this box to a friend to take care of. But like all idiotic plot device characters, this friend lost all of the keys that accompanied the box. And it's not like, you know, it was like they were like common locks. They were individually like handcrafted locks, all four of them different. So you need the specific keys for each lock. This is where you break out the lock picking lawyer videos. <laughs> no, it, they describe it because they say it's not the way it was or at least this is also part of my problem because I don't know the lock picking thing, but they said the way that the locks were made, you would have to either like saw through the box and break the mechanisms and possibly destroy what's inside or like get a chainsaw or like smash <laughs> it from a great height or something. And Jeremy didn't want to do that. Like Obviously. I get it. If his dad made it, that's fine. Like I get it. But also like, I don't know how that actually works in terms of lock picking. And I did not want to do any more research for this than I had to do. <laughs> um, Jeremy is obviously thrown into the search for the keys because he doesn't want to destroy the box. Uh, and he's hoping that his dad will have left him some sort of way to cope uh, with his absence. Um, a way for him to feel like he's being guided by his father to grow into a good person without his father actually being there physically. Mm -hmm. um, based on the setup, you're going to think, oh... This is going to be like focusing on Jeremy actually looking for the keys. He might be like finding some clues along the way. It might be like a Nancy Drew Hardy Boys situation. It sounds really fun. And from the concept, it sounded fun to my nine-year-old self. Um, but no, that's not what we get. And while I'm, I don't really have anything against a book having a grand theme beneath the plot, even for a kid's book or like series, because you can get that and still make it fun and enjoyable to yeah. experience. I do want to stress that I read this book at nine years old. <laughs> I was within the age recommended for the readers of the Jeremy Fink book. And I still thought it was garbage. And I still think it's garbage today. <laughs> so I don't know. Actually, I do know. I have a lot to say. <laughs> Instead of the fun clue hunt that I hoped for, readers are subjected to Jeremy's unrelated mischief with his friend Lizzie. And it's not even like a fun mischief, like the kind that entertains you. No. Instead, we get Lizzie stealing stupid shit like free flyers from the wall on like a family member's shop. So it's not even like you're stealing. Like they were free flyers. But then she like takes it and it's like, run! And it's so stupid. And they also idiotically break into a building that holds old law offices. And oh my god. I forgot that Jeremy's mom works at a library. <laughs> I feel like that TikTok audio, you know, the one that goes, oh no, it's John Wick. <laughs> um, so now all I'm going to think of is that I could end up with a child like Jeremy, which is such an advertisement for birth control. <laughs> also, Jeremy's just a little shit in general. Like, I get that he's turning 13 years old and 13 year olds are 13 year olds yeah but i happen to like babysit for a family that has three boys one of them that's like approaching like teenage years and while he's sassy and has like that whole thing like he's actually a pretty cool kid to be around i fucking hate reading jeremy's point of view i think it is the dumbest thing jeremy's like i'm a picky eater i'm a picky eater too but i ate a couple different things jeremy only eats peanut butter sandwiches nothing else just peanut butter two slices of white bread all the time breakfast lunch dinner snacks okay so i do have to say my youngest brother is autistic 
Yeah. And for the longest time, he would only eat peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. We could sometimes get chicken nuggets into him. That's sometimes. Okay. When did that... But how old was your brother when this was going on? Like three to age seven. Jeremy's turning 13 years old. True that. And he doesn't occasionally eat chicken nuggets. He only eats peanut butter sandwiches ever. And like, I get it. I get that like for neurodivergent people, I have my safe foods when I get into things that I will, if I feel like I can't eat anything else, I'll eat that. That is a different thing. It is literally, it's not even like described as like the safe food for Jeremy. It's just that he, the way he's described, it's not that. It is not described in any kind of way. It makes him sound like a complete brat. Like his mom will be like, I made this for you. And he's like, I just want a peanut butter sandwich. And she's like, well, okay. Well, maybe we can try another. He's like, no, I don't like your cooking. I just want a peanut butter sandwich. How does this kid not have scurvy? It, he literally describes the fact that he eats them so much that his sweat smells like peanut butter. It's disgusting. <laughs> See what I mean about having a kid like Jeremy would be like a good advertisement for birth control? Uh-huh. Uh, and worse. And it gets worse. So not only do I feel like I resemble Jeremy's mother because she works at a library, but Jeremy himself has cutouts of the hobbits from the Lord of the Rings movies. Oh, dear. I'm reminded viscerally of that woman who had a Smeagol cutout and used to take it with her to, like, dinner and order it fish. And she had a husband and children. And I... That was traumatizing. Yeah. I I thought I was Jeremy's mom. And I was like, that's bad enough, because that means I might have a kid like Jeremy if I ever had kids. Um, <laughs> But I think I might actually be more like Jeremy. <laughs> The look on Lindsay's face. She's basically just rolling on the floor in shame. It's so bad. <laughs> okay. But if generally the like bullshit that it, like his him and his friend get up to that's supposed to be like mischief, but it's just lame or stupid for the most part. Um, <laughs> if that's not bad enough, uh, because of their half-assed attempt at a break-in, yeah, you know, when they break into, like, an abandoned building, like, where there used to be law offices in, like, a part of a building? Uh, because of that, they're stuck doing community service with an antique dealer, uh, which means us readers are stuck reading about community service with an <laughs> antique dealer. So we are also getting punished. Like, we're the ones that were the dumbasses that broke into the building. Um, okay. Like, <sighs> okay. I can do this. Um, there are more compelling options if you want them to learn about people's differences and to learn about the uniqueness and diverse cultures and paths of life. But of course, Wendy Mass decided that community service with an antique dealer was the best option. <laughs> Finding the keys isn't even a main plot of the book. It just kind of happens randomly between like shoehorned moments of Jeremy and Lizzie doing that, oh, Wow. Other people have different lives than us, but we're also the same in some areas. That's incredible. So it's so it's <laughs> Lindsay's having a meltdown right now. It's so bad. And whether Jeremy and Lizzie are stealing a random bowl of keys from a flea market because more theft. Yeah, more theft of stupid shit. Or competing in the state fair, nothing ever really picks up steam like you think it should. The plot drags on, and Wendy Mass never fully commits to any of the angles or arcs that she slaps together with scotch tape, which is almost offensive to the name of scotch tape. Scotch tape deserves better than that. Like, the idea of material things don't bring happiness, like, that's when, like, that's true, but, like, she has all of these cliche ideas and shoves them all into one book like material things don't bring happiness or live in the moment or other others opinions aren't always everything so basically every single cliche that could be found on the sign of a basic white woman's home <laughs> uh like honestly i straight up believe uh wendy mass has signs or coffee mugs with sayings like this i think she's like Live, this laugh, is, love. Oh, it's so bad. <laughs> like, she seems like she's that type of person. Um, 
And because this book quite literally made me want to gouge my eyes out uh, when I was a child, remind you, um, I don't mind spoiling the actual ending for you guys. I know, breaking news. Um, <laughs> or should I say this book broke me? <laughs> I am a broken shell of a human being because of this book. He basically gets handed the keys and opens it at a lake um, after his little birthday party thing. And he reads a letter that his dad wrote to Jeremy shortly before he died. In it, his dad gives him a winding allegory about different wolves fighting and the one being fed coming out the winter. And how everyone has their own string that ties up their own story. You know, that bullshit story that gets periodically reposted on Tumblr or other social medias. Uh -huh. And it makes people make fun of Tumblr. Or whatever social media yeah, site it gets posted it's like, on. This is why this is social media is failing because of stories like that. And honestly, actually, Tumblr is the only true social media left because everybody else has been taken over by marketing and Tumblr hasn't. Yeah. Just pointing that out. As someone who's been on Tumblr for 11 years. You're not biased. Anyways. Um, <laughs> and then we get time passing. And our very last moment is with Jeremy riding on the subway. The narrator stating, the people on the train don't know it. But inside, dot, 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 I'm dancing. What? But, yeah. That's my... What? <laughs> the whole thing is a rambling mess that I wouldn't be surprised if Wendy Mass wrote in five minutes before the submission deadline, like the whole ending passage. I think she would have been coming up on... She's like, shit, I have five minutes. Shit, 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 shit. And just fucked off with this. It's that bad. And this shit won awards. Awards! Seriously? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. Lindsay just echoed in this room, y'all. <laughs> One review called it well-written and captivating. I don't know what drugs that reviewer was on, but I would rather give myself a concussion than read this ever again. Also, if you think that listening to the audiobook will make it better, ding dong, you are wrong! <laughs> I did the audiobook this time, and even the narrator was horrible. The pacing was god-awful, due in equal parts to Wendy's quality of writing and to the narrator, Andy Paris. He gave some characters distinct voices, but the accents would come and go more than Wanda Maximoff's in the MCU. <laughs> it's bad. It was bad. Okay, that also reminds me, my mom is a huge Law & Order SVU fan, right? Mm -hmm. I could not watch Law & Order SVU for years because there was a character on there that was supposed to be Southern, and eventually they just kind of gave up because in the first episode, she only sounds like she's from Georgia twice. And the actress just could not keep her act. Oh. Yeah. She finally left the show, and I'm so excited. I can start I watching it again. I actually loved her character, so I don't know where to I, about mm, that. I couldn't stand her. Anyways, can we please get Sorry. away from your hate on Amanda Rollins and get back to my book, please? Sorry. Thank you. Um, I had to listen to the audiobook at double speed in order to bear it, because normal speed was just atrocious the worst uh nine hours nine hours of listening to this for you guys um <sighs> and then i watched the movie <laughs> i think Lindsay has just legit had a breakdown <laughs> okay so first off uh, the DVD only had English options for the language and no subtitles whatsoever. Not even English subtitles. Uh, so how garbage of a movie do you have to be that no one will dub your movie? And how ableist do you have to be to have no subtitles? Yeah. Uh, also, the main menu has a god-awful song called Looking for the Meaning of Life, and I wanted to stab my ears. <laughs> The opening credits continued with the same song and had a horrible stop-motion animation montage slash collage of clocks and landscapes and, like, cityscapes. And why is it that generally only bad movies put their credits first? Well, old movies or bad movies. Yeah, well, old movies because that was the thing, but, like, since they made the transition, it's really only bad movies that yeah. do it if it's not, like, a classic movie. And they do it because they know that people will not make it to the end of their movie and decide they need to put all of their shit in the beginning. That's why they do it. Because they know they made a shit movie. And they're like, well, we need to put the credits first, or otherwise we're not going to get credit. Then they make the mailman that delivers the package to Jeremy, like, as Lizzie's dad. 
that's just not right. That's not what it is. <laughs> he wasn't a male then. And he wasn't fat male then. It's not right. They also take away Jeremy's dad's obsession with comic books and replace it with antiques and furniture. Saying that he found the box that he gives to Jeremy, but I'm pretty sure in the book he had it made custom, if not making it himself. And Jeremy's building also a time machine in the movie. Huh. I'm 10 minutes into the actual movie. Uh, I'm I, Basically, when I was writing my notes, I was like word vomiting. So that's part. 10 minutes into the movie, uh, because I didn't count the credit montage. I was like, that doesn't count. That is a fever nightmare. Um, and I really considered hitting myself over the head and saying, <laughs> I don't know what happened. Sorry, I blocked it out. Um, literally, my grandma walked in when, like, in the first 10 minutes. I'm like, this is so bad. Mimi, this is so bad. I hate it. She's like, why are you watching it? And I'm like, because I have to because of the podcast. She's like, okay, have fun. <laughs> and, you know. Normally, I try not to shit on kid actors because they're kids. Mm -hmm. Even if they've been doing it for a couple years or if they've had some training, they're still kids. They're not going to have the abilities that adult actors yeah. or even teenage actors are going to be able to have. Like, they're just not. But the performances of Jerry, me, and Lizzie are not great. <laughs> they're not properly trained, I think. So that's really all I have to say about it. And most of that poor quality should be blamed on the writers and directors because when it's kids acting if the story is good you can deal with the fact that it's kids acting yeah but the writers and the directors fucked up royally they obviously couldn't take anything from the source material because that was also garbage but they're like okay we're doing an adaptation and the things they did change only served to make it worse <laughs> Like, when Lizzie steals keys from the flea market in the book, it's an old white man. In the movie, they decide to make it a black guy, which is fine. That, in and of itself, that's cool. Oh, like, you're actually like, making it more diverse. But then they make him really angry and aggressive. Yeah. It's like, um, definitely not a good look for the producers. And it's really weird when they're planning to breaking into the law office and Lizzie jokes about feminine wiles and starts flipping her hair around. Isn't she 13? She's 12, actually. Jeremy's turning 13. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so who decided that was a necessary addition? It just felt off. And Jeremy's panic over public transportation is one of the highlights. Like, it felt real. It felt like he was actually portraying what it's like to have anxiety in certain situations in public. But then it gets dulled by him and Lizzie having a loud conversation, complaining about a man eating, when they're literally sitting right next to him like they like he can't fucking hear them. Mm. Also, they try and jam in a butterfly effect combined with, was I saying that out loud bit? It's so fucking dumb. Lindsay's literally pounding on the floor right now because she's so pissed. It's so dumb. And breaking it, the breaking in scene itself is so dumb. And I hated that I smiled at their stupid little sneaking around and whispering, despite it being an abandoned floor. Like they're hopping around and hiding behind corners and stuff. And I laughed. I mean, if you if you can take one good moment out of a bad movie, that's good. Yes. But when I realized I was smiling as I watched it, I literally said out loud to the movie itself. Fuck you! <laughs> also, the guy from Dumb and Dumber, uh, you know, the one that's sitting in the middle between, you know, the two characters during the one hear the most annoying sound, guys, guys, stop! That guy, he plays a police officer. It's random as hell. <laughs> random as hell. He is the one that assigns them to the community service to help the guy named Mr. Oswald at his antique store. And this police officer is an annoying, power-hungry ass that gets into an argument with a 12-year-old. Wow. So say it with me, folks. Fuck the police. <laughs> <laughs> Oswald himself, the antique guy, is super, like, fluttery and dismissive, which is a far cry from the detailed conversations that he has with the kids in the books. And I can't even believe I'm trying to defend the book's plot or characterization at all. What the fuck has this done to me? Again, the reason there needs to be a job called the book slapper. Yes. They're 
first delivery is to a bitchy old woman who faints upon seeing the book return to her and then pulls a knife on the kids. What? She pulls, It's a letter opener technically, but she like points it at the kids. And she's like, Oswald, Oswald has been dead for years. Because of course Oswald's name is Oswald, Oswald. What the fuck? <laughs> And the book is a signed copy by A.A. A. Milne, Winnie the Pooh. Like, it's a signed copy of that. And it's addressed to the woman and her childhood friend. And honestly, the funniest moment in the film comes when she dismisses the kids. She's, like, get telling them to get out. And she's like, leave the book. That's my poo. when she laughs. continues when Lizzie and Jeremy are scared of Latin American men on the street to get into a building but not the homeless man that's been following them for like five blocks WTF yeah I'd be scared of the one that's actually following you and not the guys that are just chilling in their own neighborhood you know yeah seriously um they also (laughs) take out the entire bit about the lamp delivery man being old and they turn him into a 50 year old hippie instead of an 80 year old man who's just satisfied with his life after living this long they literally take the shoehorn plot and make it even more of a caricature than it already was in the book and the montages are back with shitty stop motion animation that looks like a bad scrapbook album (laughs) it was so dumb uh they also add characters that don't exist in the book just to make them do a seance that also doesn't exist in the book and surprise surprise it's bullshit (laughs) Like, (laughs) Jeremy has a freak out and starts breaking his time machine. Cool. Make that disappear because it doesn't exist in the book anyways. I'm sorry, he has a time machine? Yeah, remember I told you he was building a time machine in the beginning of the movie? It's a fucking joke. So when he's freaking out, he starts to break his time machine and throws a tantrum, uh, despite Lizzie reminding him that at least his dad loved him because her mom abandoned her. Like, just straight up noped out and left. Um... They patch things up really quickly. Like, it's literally like two minutes later. Wow. And I get that they need to have a clean arc, but, like, kids do not have conflict negotiation like that. They no. can't. And a lot of adults don't even have that ability. So Correct. Um, that's, like, the one thing they brought over from the book consistently was the shitty pacing and storytelling. <laughs> um, and remember the racism uh-huh. from earlier? Well, it's back. Um, a white woman gives a parodied version of a Romani fortune teller, which is literally whitewashing, faking an exaggerated accent, wearing the fake gaudy clothes that the actual Romani people have said is completely inaccurate. So yes, this was written in 2011, but even back then, if you know you're doing something based off of an actual culture, actually cast the people and also have sensitivity, like, viewers and producers watching it. Like, it's not that hard. I, I will say, back in 2011, 2008 range, there wasn't a whole lot of that. We have a lot of it now, but we did not have a whole lot of that. And I will say I am guilty of it as well. I dressed up as a Romani for Halloween for several years, but I was also, you know, in middle school. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing. The children that do it, that's not on them. I'm talking about corporations. So even though it wasn't popular or widespread back then, even back then in that context, there should have been more work put into it. Yeah. At least with actually casting a Romani person. Yeah. If you're like. Or someone who could pass as Romani and not a white person. Well, not even that. I think like when you're doing something based off of a culture, you you don't cast someone that's not like either of that culture. It's different when it's made up cultures like Wakanda, because since Wakanda doesn't actually exist and it's made up of a bunch of different African cultures tied into one 
that's a little bit different of a situation. Mm -hmm. But it's just so messed up. And then the end shot of Jeremy on the subway would almost be cool if it wasn't for the shaky camera. It's like they were holding it and just going, it gave me a headache. And it's not, that's not even the ending like it is in the book. They end on a scene of Jeremy trying to find Oswald, but Oswald's just gone. Oh, so apparently he has been dead for years. No, the driver's there and the the driver just tells him that Oswald like left and went to like the Florida Keys or someplace like that. Huh. Florida Keys. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and the whole scene is so like self-servicing and it reveals <laughs> it reveals a plot that doesn't exist in the book and it's so stupid. <laughs> But they made this up. There's literally been a whole conspiracy with all of the adults. All of them. The mailman who's Lizzie's dad. Uh, Jeremy's mother. The key, the key man at the marketplace. Oswald. What? All of the people that got delivered the packages, including the bitchy old woman that held a knife to him. Like, there's been a conspiracy theory with all of the adults to get Jeremy to find the keys and therefore be able to discover the meaning of life. It's so so fucking dumb and i hate it <laughs> i really just i never i never would have been able to guess i really just hate it even more than the book i wanted there to be mystery and linked clues and keys and they gave me a mystery but it's just bullshit <laughs> <laughs> I wasted my life listening to the book and watching the movie. So, like, I really do hope that y'all appreciate how much I suffered for this episode. <laughs> and I hope you appreciate our comeback because this, like, season two, I the the rest of the the rest of the episodes have to be better. Like, this is going to be a very entertaining episode, but like in terms of what we're actually reading, I can only hope that it gets better from here. Fingers crossed. <laughs> So now that we've ranted about both horrible books and movies, I think it's time for everyone's favorite, favorite segment, <laughs> the Encyclopedia. Let's see if we can spin a little bit better this time. Oh my gosh, last time was a hot, yeah. hot mess. That was awful. It's a little better. A little better, but it's also still saying fuck you. <laughs> Why a sci-fi? YA sci-fi. Okay, you know how for prepping for this episode, I, I was completely ready and you were lost? Uh-huh. Now I'm lost. Okay, so most of my YA is not sci-fi, so we're gonna both be a little lost this episode. Sorry, listeners. Next next episode is going to be very fun for you, I'm sure. <laughs> up on social media we have a facebook tiktok tumblr and instagram those are all at library fugitives we also have an email which is library fugitives podcast at gmail.com and that's just for listener requests questions you may have or just to talk to us yeah so remember y'all stay safe in the stacks out there bye, bye.